FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to all of you for joining us for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, Today's a workday down at the state capitol, which means they stop the clock today so that legislators can uh, negotiate over bills that they're either trying to pass or stop from passing. They start the clock again tomorrow morning at, uh, usually it's 10 a.m., and that will be day 40, the final day of the session. And then sometime around midnight, they'll uh, sine die, uh, which is how they pronounce the Latin word for end of days, uh, no more days. Um, I think we learned a long time ago that's not the correct pronunciation, but what the heck, that's become what it's known as. Uh, so there's a lot hanging in the balance. We're only going to talk about a few major bills with this panel today because there's just too much happening down there for us to try to uh, go into detail on everything. I also think it's important today that I talk with the panel about just this another horrific shooting in a school. And of course, this time close to home, right up the road in Nashville, Tennessee, um, six people uh, shot and killed. Um, Is there any chance that anyone is going to do anything about gun safety laws. We're going to discuss that with the panel and and other issues as well. So let's get right to a great panel uh, uh, we have on the show today. Tamar Hallerman is my Tuesday partner on the show. She's the senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Tamar, one of the other things I want to talk about is you wrote a really fascinating piece since you've been uh, covering the uh, special grand jury in Fulton County since the very beginning about how what's happening in the New York City uh, investigation of Trump and the grand jury there might have an impact on what's happening here. So I'm looking forward to doing that a little bit later in the show. But in the meantime, thanks for being here, Tamar. Of course, Bill. And I hope you don't mind me sharing to the listeners, but a little birdie told me that today is your birthday. So happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks very much. Yeah. I'm just getting older and older. It's just unbelievable <laughs> to me, but thank you for saying that. Uh, Andre Gillespie is with us, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson for the study of race and difference at Emory University. Hi, Andre. You know, I don't ask you very often about how things are going in the James Weldon Johnson program. Do you have a a slate of programs that are either about to come up or coming up later in the spring? Oh, I mean, we have something going on every week. So we have our weekly colloquium um, on Mondays at noon and then um, and we post those um, online after the fact. And then we're going to have a great James Weldon Johnson lecture on um, April 20th. So it's going to be Dr. Michael Blakey, an archaeologist at uh, the College of William and Mary. Oh, and and why an archaeologist? Um, so he uh, is the was the lead archaeologist for excavating a site um, in Manhattan where they found a slave burial site in Lower Manhattan, and so oh. yeah, it's it's going to be a really cool talk. 
It, is that open to the public? Yes, it is. And if you go to our website at uh, James Weldon Johnson Institute dot uh, Emory dot edu, or if you just Google JWJI Emory, you can find a link to the page. There will be um, there, there will be registration information posted. Th- thank you. That sounds really fascinating. So thanks for uh, mentioning that your colleague, Alan Abramowitz, now a professor emeritus of political science at Emory University, is back with us today. Hi, Alan. How are you? Great. Glad to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And um, Chuck Bullock uh, is with us, professor of political science at the University of Georgia. Chuck, I'm so happy uh, you're back with us today. Thanks a lot for uh, being here. Chuck, how many sessions of the Georgia... How many sessions of the Georgia General Assembly do you imagine that you have watched unfold during your, what, six-decade tenure as a professor at UGA? (laughs) Well, in 1973, I was our coordinator for interns, so I was over there quite a bit from that point on. I'm not doing that anymore, but... uh, And then, having grown up in Georgia, I I guess claim I watched it at least to some extent for many, many years as a a young boy. (laughs) Well, good. Then we'll look forward to your insights today. Uh, Tomorrow, let's, let's, as I said, we're just going to duck into a few of the high-profile measures that are still uh, uh, waiting for action. And let's start with with sports betting, which is a bill that uh, everybody seems to be fascinated by. Four different versions of a sports betting bill were shot down uh, during the session, uh, but they've managed to revive one of them. Um, and uh, that one now is uh, in the, uh, uh, I think it's in the House, or no, I'm sorry, it's in the Senate. Uh, it's in the Senate. The problem with it is that Republicans don't have enough votes to pass it there because there are some Republicans in the caucus who are very conservative who don't like it. And Democrats have said they refuse to support the measure in part because they are protesting the fact that the legislature passed the measure that limits the way in which transgender treat children can be treated by doctors. So it's going to be interesting to see. A lot of people want this bill to pass, but that's one that's uh, maybe impossible to get through before tomorrow night. Yeah, this seems like the zombie issue that keeps reviving itself just when you think it's it's dead. Uh, but the fact that they don't seem to have enough votes, you're seeing the, the lieutenant governor step out and try and, and uh, pressure Democrats to support it because he's saying there's money for the Hope Scholarship and education. Uh, but I don't know how far he's going to get at this point. Um, Democrats, as you mentioned, are still fuming over the this um this new law that was signed by Brian Kemp that would um, limit the the medical options for young transgender kids. And so I, I wonder if this will be an issue for next session. Yeah, we may have to uh, uh, wait for it to uh, come up again next year. It keeps getting put off. Chuck, one of the issues around this bill has been there were so many different versions of it. Uh, some of the versions of the bill wanted to attach uh, 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 paramutual wagering, horse racing, uh, to uh, to uh, sports betting. One of the measures said that it would require a constitutional amendment. Another said it can be done just by a simple vote and attach it 
to the lottery. So one of the problems the bill has had is there has been no one single focus that has allowed legislators to get behind it, Chuck. Yeah, I guess another way to look at it is it's been tried in many different guises, and you can't get it passed in any of these different variants. So, yeah, the real problem, I guess, is it's division within the GOP caucus. You know, we're used to seeing the Republican Party pretty much united on everything that comes along, but this is one of the things where it's disunited, and it goes back to what we saw even 30 years ago, where the Hope Scholarship, as popular as it is now, when that came up for a vote in the form of a lottery back in 1992, it passed very narrowly, and a lot of uh, parts of rural Georgia, conservatives, voted against it at that point. So that that suspicion, that dislike for anything which involves gambling is something which is still out there and has to be overcome before you can make this change, whether it's going to be sports betting or horse racing or any of these things. And back then in 92, when Zell Miller was governor, this was his big, big issue was passing this. Um, he uh, uh, he had some real problems with his reelection campaign in 94 as a result of it. And a lot of it, Andre, came from conservative religious organizations who had moral uh, 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 objections to allowing for what they thought of as as, as gambling uh, with lottery. I, Andre, to what extent do you imagine that the, the um, conservative religious uh, influence still matters much in, an, in a fight like this? I think it matters because this bill this year for strategic purposes can't be waged with or, you know, can't be won with bipartisan support. So if Democrats are defecting because they object to the transgender bills, then Republicans don't have a group with whom they can coalesce to kind of sideline uh, the religious conservative vote, which isn't going to go away. So unless these legislators um, and their constituents compromise their principles and support this, they're probably not going to say yes, even if they know that it's inevitable and this is likely going to happen because that's the trend that's happening around the country. Um, they at least feel that they have to say um, on principle, no, I came out against this. So this means that the Republicans who are in favor of this, who are focusing more on business than necessarily the morality of gambling, need Democrat support. They don't have it this time. So they're just going to have to wait until they can actually get the right coalition together and not necessarily think about persuading people who have deep moral convictions about the problems that are associated with gambling. Alan, uh, some of the Republicans who support this measure are, uh, are calling out Democrats saying, hey, you're the ones who always want more money for schools, and now you're opposing a bill that in fact would, uh, some of the proceeds of which, in terms of the sports betting, would be earmarked for uh, schools. And we should also point out, and I might get my year wrong here, but I think it was two years ago that all the major professional sports uh, uh, owners and managers came out in favor of this measure, uh, and yet it still can't get done. Well, I think what you're seeing is the, a reflection of the sort of deep partisan division that exists within the legislature, and it's not just the transgender bill. I think that uh, as you look across the board this year and in recent years and you know even more so this year, like on, on almost every major piece of legislation, uh, this being one of the rare exceptions, that the votes are falling almost strictly along party lines. And the 
Democrats are just upset about a lot of the things that Republicans have been pushing through this year. Transgender bill is one, but there's, there's school vouchers. You know, there's there's the oversight of local prosecutors. There's a lot of things Democrats are upset about, and I think they're not going to uh, uh, you know give give the Republicans anything. Um, yeah, you know, unless they get get something significant in return, which you know I don't think they view the additional money for hope as as, a, as sufficient, you know, to overcome their they're just general dis, discontent with the the way, the way things have been been being done down there. All right. Well, that's a measure that could come down to the wire tomorrow. Uh, uh, tomorrow, here's another one uh, that I think is worth looking at: um, school vouchers. Uh, that was like on fumes up until uh, recently. The Senate had passed a measure which would provide $6,500 per student for families that wanted to send their children uh, to either private schools or have homeschooling expenses that needed to be addressed. Um, It went down in flames last session uh, when a big national advocacy group uh, said it was a terrible idea. It had new traction this year. Um, but it still seemed to be in doubt. And just yesterday, it got a big boost. Governor Kemp came out in support of this uh, bill. Um, let's talk about it for a few minutes tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, if the governor wants it now, I'm, I'm watching it closely to, to see if it passes. And remember last year, it wasn't a group opposing it that led to its death. It was actually a conservative group supporting the vouchers who sent out these leaflets to conservative districts comparing Republican lawmakers to radical left figures if they uh, did not support something like this. And it angered the speaker so much that he said it wasn't going to to make it onto the floor. But it's starting to feel that now perhaps the planets are starting to, the stars are starting to align if the the governor wants it it's starting to feel like it's it's getting the fuel it needs to cross the finish line. Um, yeah, thank you for clarifying exactly what that uh, uh, pressure uh, campaign was last session. Um, Alan, look, you know, uh, we all know on this panel, school vouchers has been an issue in the Georgia legislature for as long as I can remember. There have always been a group of Republicans who wanted to give parents choice. And of course, the argument I mean, there are some arguments for them. And in fact, the legislature heard in committees from two different experts on the subject of vouchers who had entirely diametrically opposed positions on them, historically saying one one of them saying that you look back on the record of states that have vouchers and see that students have performed better in private schools. The other saying, no, it's only marginal. So we don't really have data to show exactly how successful this is. But Alan, what we do know is that when you take $6,500 from a public school because a student goes to a private school instead, the uh, public school educators say, all you're doing is hurting public schools that are in desperate need of enough funds to be quality schools. And and I think that that's where the real... uh, you know, significant opposition to this is going to is going to come from here. It's a question of whether there's enough opposition here, you know, from uh, school 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 local school boards and school superintendents and and um, uh, parents 
uh, in these districts who are who are worried about the impact that this will have on the funding for public schools, particularly when we talk about uh, <clears throat> a rural uh, Georgia and small town Georgia, where you know the, the private school options are very limited, uh, and, and where sixty five hundred dollars, frankly, is, is also not going to get you very far in terms of paying for tuition at an, an elite school. So, you know, how many how many parents are actually going to be able to afford this who are currently sending their kids to, to private school uh, to public schools? So, um, you know, it, what it amounts to is is a, a, a taxpayer subsidy for private schooling, uh, including religious schools and in, in, including, as I understand it, potentially even homeschooling. Um, so it's it's something that I think is uh, always been very controversial. Um, and it's, again, one of these issues that's very likely to fall pretty much along a party lines. Um, you're going to see, uh, I think, a part, uh, something close to a straight party line vote uh, on this when it comes up. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Alan that this is going to probably be a party line vote. And I think the larger question is, um, what does this say about investment, not just monetary investment, but just overall investment in improving public schools? So um, if you're going to allow for some divestment from, from, from the public school system, does this mean that you're giving up on public education entirely? And that should be the state's focus, right? That's their job to be able to do. And then I think just given the breadth of where these bills uh, can... Uh, 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 or the breadth of where these uh, vouchers can be used, I think that there would be a larger question of quality control. Like there are already things in place, I know, you know, to try to monitor and advance the progress of, of, of folks who, for instance, are homeschooled. Uh, but there's also lots of variability. And I think Alan and I have seen it sometimes where we've encountered students who have come from certain backgrounds um, and we know kind of like what type of preparation you have. And so, yes, you could get away with meeting the minimum state requirements. Um, to get a high school diploma, but the education that you would get, particularly at the high school level in a home school that could be potentially taught by a parent um, who isn't trained in education, might not even have, you know, the right types of qualifications uh, to be teaching as far, as far as I would be concerned, right, then depriving their students, their children of certain things that would actually make them competitive in college. And so those are the things that we need to think about as to whether or not you need a subsidy for that um, type of information. And then, you know, it's just that school's a public good. So even as somebody like me who doesn't have children, I don't complain about my property taxes because I recognize that having a good school in my neighborhood is actually beneficial for all of us, right? And I benefit from that in terms of the equity in my house. So I think sometimes it's very narrow. It's all about me and mine forgets that we are part of this larger we community um, and that we have to care about things even if they don't directly affect us. Chuck? Yeah, uh, with the governor behind this, I think the odds are it probably gets passed. And I'm thinking at the end of a session, I think the lead that tomorrow could put in almost any day and could have written it back in January was governor gets everything he asked for, because that's usually the way it is, the Georgia General <laughs> Assembly. And we saw last year, again, at the very last moment when the governor came out and said it was important that legislation be passed banning transgender girls from participating on girls' sports, bam, that went just right, right through. So that's my expectation is with the governor saying he wants it, it's going to make it through tomorrow. Yeah, uh, tomorrow, I think uh, Chuck makes a good point. Governors usually do get most of what they want, although they have fights sometimes. But this session, I've said it from the very first day of the session, Governor Kemp's major victory over first David Perdue in the primary, and then his significant victory 
over Stacey Abrams made him, I think, even more powerful in the legislature this year than perhaps he has been before. Yeah, and my colleague Greg Bluestein has written a lot about how um, the governor has wielded his his uh, even greater power this year, and a lot of it has been quieter, a little more behind the scenes. But uh, Chuck is totally right; he seems to be getting a lot of what he wants and is is wielding that that newfound power very effectively. Tamar, let's talk about just a, a, another measure or two that are still hanging in the fire and that have been talked about a lot on this show and in the news. Um, The bill that would create a new definition for anti-Semitism has been controversial throughout the session. The purpose of defining it for the first time is to pave the way for an anti-Semitic act to be included uh, as a charge for a hate crime. And um, the um, although there's been enormous amounts of support for it on the House side, uh, the Senate was not happy about this bill for a couple reasons. Um, one of them was they didn't, it, it, the, the measure adopts a language of an International Holocaust Remembrance Association. Some members of the Senate said we should have our own definition. But there's also been questions as to whether criticism of Israel under the uh, definition of this international organization could qualify as a hate crime. So this one is very much up in the air, I think. Yeah, it's been interesting to see. And a lot of the opposition you've heard from uh, campus groups uh, that, that support Palestinians and kind of talking, well, we, we want to be able to criticize Israel and it's not it's not a hate crime under under all this. And there's been a question also of, of why there can't be a definition written to the state law and why the sponsors want to use the, um, you know, the outside organization's definition. Um, this seemed like a bill that was done for um, in recent weeks, and but it's been it's been resurrected. And I know that it's something that there is broader support from it, I believe, from the speaker. You can check me if I'm wrong, Bill, but uh, I'll be interested to see if it if it can make it through. Um, Andra, there's also, you know, in the House, it passed by an overwhelming majority, although there were a minority of representatives, uh, particularly uh, representatives of color, who said, well, why are we uh, uh, carving out this for um Uh, Jewish people when we don't have the same protections for um, other uh, minorities in uh, the state? Um, You know, I I think in terms of thinking about the direction of where a hate crimes bill is going to be, right, we need to think about people who are being targeted uh, with uh, acts of hate. Um, And I think that there's a way to be inclusive of other groups. So if we're broadly talking about we're not, you know, that this is going to include people who are being targeted because of their race or their gender or their sexual orientation or um, their religion. And so we can do that to be broadly inclusive of that and understand that when we see like this type of hate. I think it's also sort of thinking about how this gets tied to other criminal acts acts of vandalism, um, acts of assault, um, murder, you know, those kinds of things where it's being done and the clear motivation behind these clearly felonious attacks has to do with the sort of um, deep-seated hatred of a particular group. That's a lot different than speech where people are saying things that are uncontroversial. And so we have to think about sort of like what 
the First Amendment uh, sort of provides blanket protection to. Um, and so I think there's a way to actually deal with hate crimes without actually wading into sort of these larger debates about speech, which I think are now being used to kind of create a wedge issue where Republicans want to say, see, we stood up for a minoritized group, right? But then they're also doing it in a way to try to weaponize this against groups that are typically viewed as champions of these of these communities. Ellen, I know you want to jump in. Yeah, I think, I think uh, this, this seems to keep coming down over and over again to this question about whether uh, this bill would impinge on freedom of speech, um, particularly with regard to uh, criticism of the state of Israel. Uh, and if you if you look at the content of the bill, I think it's pretty clear. And even when you look at the at the uh, definition uh, that's referred to and the examples, it's not okay. It's not about criticism of the state of Israel. Um, but I think on the one side, you have among the opponents, there is a, so much suspicion about anything that that references uh, Israel, particularly when you look at what's going on in Israel right now that I think that it's very difficult to get them to uh, accept this. And frankly, on the other side, I think one of the problems we've had with this bill is that one of the principal sponsors of it, the uh, uh, Representative Panich, keeps saying over and over again, it's not about Israel, it's not about Israel, and then brings up Israel. And then, so in her speech on the floor, where she says that the only reason people who oppose this is they don't believe in the right of the state of Israel to exist. She says that in her speech on the floor. I mean, that is a huge mistake, I think, because she's just bringing that issue right back to the forefront again. So if it comes to a vote, it will pass. But it's just a question of, you know, whether whether it's going to it's going to come to a vote. Um, Chuck, the the proponents of this bill insist, as Alan has stated, that criticism of Israel in no way uh, would uh, fall under the hate crimes uh, aspect of this, the definition of the bill. But what I, I can't help but find uh, ironic timing, this argument is being made at a time when the state of Israel is in complete turmoil because of Benjamin Netanyahu's um, move to the far right. And, and even among many Jewish groups, he is being severely uh, criticized. So that juxtapositioning strikes me as very interesting, even though, as I said, the people who support this bill say that if I said I think what Netanyahu's doing is a disgrace uh, and uh, I, I, I'm not going to be charged uh, with a hate crime. All right. Yeah, what we're seeing in Israel is what we saw in Italy under Berlusconi, where efforts are that a prime minister who is uh, facing its own criminal charges is saying, let's weaken the power of the courts here to handle these cases. I think one of the things which is driving this and which makes it, uh, keeps it on the front burner and uh, probably helps its likelihood of being passed is the appearance of these handbills, these anti-Semitic handbills that have been passed around in a number of neighborhoods, uh, not just in Atlanta, but also in some other communities. And so that, I think, maybe brings it home to some people that there really is a problem about out there, that there are uh, some anti-Semitic forces which are uh, spreading their propaganda. All right, let's do this. Um, thank you for a discussion about some of the key bills that are being looked at in the last day. Tomorrow we'll do more of that on the actual 40th day of the session. We have a lot more I'd love to talk about with this panel uh, after the break. And before we take the break, hold off on your Facebook posts, your tweets, your direct messages to me. 
when I said what I said about Netanyahu, I was speaking hypothetically. I'm not dumb enough to want to weigh in on what's happening there right now. It's a very troubling time for the state of Israel. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Charles Bullock, Alan uh, Abramowitz, Andre Gillespie, and Tamar Hallerman join me for today's Political Rewind. By the way, a very quick note, uh, something we'll talk about in depth on the show uh, tomorrow. Uh, Today, the Georgia Supreme Court is looking at the legality of HB 481, the heartbeat law which prevents women from having abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. Uh, this is really the uh, final opportunity in many ways that opponents of that law have to try to overturn uh, the law here in uh, Georgia. So uh, tomorrow on the show, we'll be talking in depth about what the arguments came down to, how they th- we think the justices responded with their questions and uh, the like. But today, let's move on to uh, other issues with this panel Tamar Hallerman, let's, let's go. You um, wrote a piece that appeared in the paper uh, just, I think, yesterday, in which you said, why don't we look at how what's happening with the grand jury in New York and its ongoing investigation of Donald Trump and the question of whether he feloniously uh, gave a, a payoff uh, to Stormy Daniels or whether it was not a crime at all. And you said what we see there could um, give us, inform us in some ways about the investigation here. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, of course, there are about two entirely separate issues, uh, you know, hush money payments to a, a former porn star versus potential criminal election interference in Georgia. Uh, the laws are different. We're talking about different sets of state laws. But uh, I write about how what's happening in New York might be a bit of a dry run for what could happen in Georgia should DA Fonnie Willis decide that she wants to indict former President Donald Trump. Uh, there are questions of security, um, what protests might look like. Um, you know, we've seen plenty of security here during key moments during the, the grand jury as they were being selected when they heard from a crucial witness. Uh, but what might that look like if there are mass protests outside of a, a courthouse or if, you know, there is kind of a famed perp walk or, or somebody coming in to get fingerprinted or, or mugshot. So there's plenty of logistical questions for the sheriff's office, for the DA, for law enforcement here. But then there's also the political prospects too, which we get into. Um, you're seeing the the DA in New York, Alvin Bragg, uh, all, under all sorts of pressure, including on Capitol Hill, where there are three really powerful Republican chairmen in the House who announced they're going to investigate his investigation. I bet something very similar 
similar could happen should DA Fonnie Willis decide she wants to do the same here. Uh, before I bring in the rest of the panel, let me ask you one other question about all of this. Um, we we keep waiting to hear that the grand jury in New York is going to bring an indictment soon because Trump tells us they are. We don't know if that's true or not. But let's talk about it here. We uh, one his attorneys, Drew Findling and and, and Jennifer Little, is right her name, um, have filed this uh, suit. Uh, asking the court to throw out everything about the special grand jury's investigation, claiming it was illegally impaneled from the very beginning and and other uh, issues that they see with it all. Uh, They've called it a a circus, a clown show. Uh, To what extent, Tamar, does that hold up whatever Fonnie Willis may want to do in terms of bringing indictments, or does she just act on her own and then let that play out separately? I think that's a question. I spoke yesterday with our friend Anthony Michael Price from Georgia State University, um, and he said he doesn't think this would impact what D.A. Willis is able to do. There's nothing in an order that we saw yesterday from Judge McBurney kind of laying out a schedule that precludes D.A. Willis from moving forward with an indictment before May 1st, should she um, should she wish. Um the DA could make the decision that she doesn't want to do anything until this matter is resolved. Uh, but many of the legal analysts I've spoke to don't think that this effort will will uh, pan out for Trump's legal team. What it could do is is kind of delay, um, in a best case scenario, the, the timeline for them. So we'll have to wait and see for that. But um, the DA can move ahead if she wants. A new regular grand jury will be impaneled starting the, the first week of May. And that's the timeline uh, a lot of us are watching to see if there could be indictments. Um, uh, meanwhile, uh, you mentioned May 1st. And the reason you mentioned that is, I believe I'm correct, that's the deadline McBurney has given uh, Fonnie Willis's office to respond to the uh, uh, motion from the Trump lawyers, May 1. So we'll all watch for that uh, to move forward as well. Um, Alan Abramowitz, uh, it, it, there are those who believe that it's unfortunate that the Alvin Bragg case seems to be moving first because um, compared to what's being investigated here, election interference, perhaps conspiracy to try to overturn the election here, mm-hmm. and certainly what the special uh, investigator is doing with DOJ in terms of the Trump papers and other matters. Um, the, the, the case in New York seems to be the weakest. Well, it's certainly the least serious charge. Um, I mean, from what I've read about what legal experts are saying about this, this this kind of uh, a charge is not that unusual. Um, this sort of falsification of business records and things like that. Um, it's 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 not that something like this is, you know, it's never been done, but it's just in connection with the president of the United States. And when you look at it compared with the other potential um, things that he could be charged with, both here in Georgia and in the in the federal case, inciting an insurrection, trying to overturn the results of an election, um, the uh, you know concealing the, these government documents and and lying to his own lawyers about what he'd done with those government documents. I mean, these are things that I think look certainly a lot more significant. And to have the New York case come up first is sort of something that I think uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, Trump critics. Uh, those who are hoping to see him uh, held accountable 
um, are are not that 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 happy about it. But it's not to say that it's not uh, potentially serious or that that he couldn't potentially be convicted. Um, but it just pales in comparison, I think, to the seriousness of these other potential charges. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a better way of framing it than I did. The New York case seems less onerous in many ways. And in fact, Andra quite often uh, falsifying business records in the New York courts is a, is a misdemeanor. They the, the, And the reason it may be even more difficult and weaker is that Alvin Bragg has to go through some pretty complicated legal uh, 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 hoops to turn it into a, uh, a felony. I mean, so there's that part of it. And so I think the question here is strategy. Donald Trump's strategy, I don't think would change regardless of which case we're dealing with, right? So one, he's going to throw everything at the wall and appeal everything until he's exhausted all of his appeals because that's what he does, right? Most people would not throw good money after bad, but like he doesn't seem to care and does that all the time. The second thing that he's doing is he's trying to take control of the narrative. And so he takes control of the narrative and claims victimization. I think the problem here with the New York case coming first is that it's a much more plausible claim of victimization because of the relative sort of lack of seriousness of the crimes compared to the allegations here in Georgia or the federal ones dealing with the documents. And so uh, people who are already primed to defend him are also primed to believe that what all of the prosecutors are doing collectively is doing their own instance of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And so that makes a more credible claim of persecution. But I think the larger issue is, did he do any of this, right? And so one, that's why you go to court to prove it. And then if we look at the evidence that we have now, right, it's not like people are making up charges um, against somebody out of thin air, right? Like there is this evidence that suggests that there may be something worth examining here. And are we letting Donald Trump off the hook when he claims victimization as opposed to saying, did you do it? And if you do it right, there are consequences for your behavior. So there's this larger moral discussion there that like, you know, is not there, but there's nothing in his strategy that I'm surprised by. But I think the timing of this is that New York should have been the cherry on top. And because it's now the base of the Sunday, the people are like, uh, this is a little flimsy, right? It's like putting it's, it's, it's putting the whipped cream on the bottom as opposed to on top. And that's why I think this is giving people heartburn. Yeah. And Chuck and then tomorrow. Elements here, I think. Yeah, a couple elements. One is delay works the advantage of the guilty. You know, if you're guilty, you don't want to go to court. Anything you can do to delay it. And so this huge filing works to that advantage. Second element is that, you know, whatever goes first, the first indictment is going to get a tremendous amount of attention. For those people who don't believe uh, in any of this is appropriate, they're going to be able to point to this first item if it comes out of New York. It's, as Andrew said, usually uh, a misdemeanor. So they'll say, yeah, that's a misdemeanor. And everything that comes after that is also a relatively trivial concern. So it has the potential then to reduce the perception of the seriousness of the documents case or of the trying to uh, change the election results in Georgia or anything else that comes along after it. So strategically, in terms of what uh, the judicial system would be best advantaged by, would be to go for the big item first, which is harder to diminish. 
Yeah, Chuck said it so well. As I talk to folks who want to see uh, Trump held to account for some of his actions, they're worried that by the New York case going first, should Donald Trump win there, he'll kind of paint everything with a broad brush, all of these subsequent cases and say, well, it's all a witch hunt. I'm vindicated on all fronts. And so they're worried that the relative seriousness of a case in Georgia could be downplayed because of what happens in um, in New York. Um, so I, I think that's the the fear there. And Donald Trump has done a great job of lumping all of these prosecutors together. Um, you know, everything he's used to throw at Alvin Bragg is something, you know, the same stuff that he's used to to throw at Fonnie Willis as well. Yeah. Alan? Uh, I just wanted to mention that um, someone that's kind of interesting that just came out in connection with all this is the results of a new poll that was done by... Um, the Marist polling organization for NPR and PBS uh, on these questions. And uh, and what, what they found in that poll is that a majority of Americans consider these accusations against Trump to be serious uh, and legitimate, and, and they don't consider it a, quote, witch hunt, unquote. Now, they didn't differentiate, uh, as far as I know, among, among the various uh, charges uh, in the New York case versus, say, the, the, the Atlanta, the Georgia case or the federal case. But just in general, um, uh, among the public overall, there's there's a pretty widespread perception that that Trump did something wrong, uh, and that he should be held to account for it. On the other hand, there is, of course, as usual, a very big partisan divide on this, uh, where the large majority of Republicans uh, think that Trump is being persecuted, think he's being treated unfairly. That's going to play out, I think, later in the Republican primaries, um, and and Trump is now, you know. Uh, Talking about trying to you know use this uh, issue to reinforce his his support in those primaries and to fend off uh, potential challenges uh, uh, there. And well, we, we do know. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> he's already doing Raise that. Money. Obviously, we also have we we have a brand new Harvard Caps Harris poll that shows that uh, Trump support for the uh, nomination has ticked up four or five points uh, since all of this began. Real quickly, because I got to get to a break. Um, I want to pick up on really something you said, Andra, and just make a comment before the break, which is everything you're saying, all of you, um, leads me to Hello? suggest that that the arguments that we're hearing from people who say, oh, we really have to be careful, an indictment of a former president of the United States is a f- very serious problem, but we've got to be careful about doing it. If a former president of the United States has potentially committed crimes, of course we can't allow that to go. And I'm surprised that that opposite argument has uh, gained, if it's gaining any ground, it seems it's probably within the Republican Party. Uh, Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back in a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Andrew Gillespie, a couple of other items while we still have a few minutes left that actually relate to Donald Trump and uh, and his efforts to overturn uh, the election. What what do you make of the fact 
that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has been a strong advocate for the January 6th defendants who, who have been arrested and in many cases imprisoned for the crimes they uh, are alleged to have committed, uh, has been defending them and just late last week, Friday, took a delegation of mostly Republicans to uh, jail in Washington, D.C., because she's concerned about the conditions in which these, she would say, political prisoners are being held. Andra? I mean, you know, it's a symbolic gesture, um, but I think it's an important symbolic gesture that signals her soft power within the Republican caucus, which we knew already, which we, you know, you know, you know, this is what she got for aligning with Kevin McCarthy. That brings her a certain air of credibility. Um, Now, when she uh, makes these missions of mercy, it certainly helps to solidify her cult status within the MAGA wing of the party, which would give her her own platform that could potentially outlast Donald Trump. Um, you know, I also find it very, very interesting that in terms of of, of, of what she's doing, um, she has borrowed a page from what civil rights activists, uh, you know, have done for years and years, right? And we've seen sort of like, you know, the appropriation of sort of using woke now as an epithet against people, uh, you know, who are arguing for greater diversity and inclusion, right? The idea that you're going to go witness political prisoners as she is styling them to make sure that they're, uh, that they are being treated fairly in prisons, you know, this isn't, you know, different in terms of tactic than what we would have seen people like Mary Church Terrell doing a hundred years ago when they were visiting black uh. prisoners who were used. And so, um, you know, it, it it is interesting. It is depth. It's a bit of an appropriation, right? But then there's the larger question of you were doing this in support of people who were actually engaged in insurrection and trying to overthrow the democratic system as we know it. That's problematic. And so if that's the type of leader that you want, this is what you get. But she's, I mean, she's playing it to the hill, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, I know everybody in this panel would love to jump in on this, but I'm going to change the subject with the last couple minutes we have. Tamar, um, tragedy yesterday in Nashville, Tennessee. Six people uh, killed, three of them children. The child of the pastor of the school killed, the head of the school killed by a 28-year-old former student there, a woman. Um, and, And President Biden, once again, uh, says we have got to enact an assault weapons ban, but he's obviously not going to get very far with a Republican uh, House and with a Senate that doesn't have enough uh, votes anyway uh, to pass a bill there. Tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this has become such a repetitive conversation and one that never seems to you know, we never seem to get much resolution on it. As you mentioned, um, the votes aren't there. They weren't there when Democrats control, controlled both chambers of, of Congress. They certainly are not there now. Um, the The president has called for a assault weapons ban, like what he was able to pass in the 1990s uh, for 10 years. But now um, assault weapons have become so widespread in American society. The Post had a great um, series of stories about that yesterday, which had like some shocking number, like I want to say 16 million of them are floating around something like one in 20 adults have them. Um, I'm probably butchering those statistics, but some pretty wild numbers there. And now we have the additional Um, twist in all of this that the shooter may be transgender. Um, There's been some questions about the gender identity of the shooter, and I think that's going to add to the way that this is talked about, and I doubt it'll be in a very productive way. 
Yeah, I think that's probably right. Chuck, here's one of the quotes from President Biden yesterday. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of the nation. We have to do more to protect our schools so they aren't turned into prisons. I mean, that's self-evident. It still isn't going to move the needle. No, probably not. And here the main thing is these assault weapons, you know, high capacity, fire rapidly, lots of bullets. Hunters I know don't use assault weapons. They're going after deer or turkey or doves. Mm -hmm. May well be the case that there have been more kids killed with assault weapons than there have been wild animals. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is uh, however you feel about the Second Amendment. Uh, You you don't need to have these Mm -hmm. kinds of weapons out so readily available. Andra and then Alan, final words before we're out of time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think anything is going to happen. I think, sadly, we are very inured to what's happening. And so it's just, yeah, we're going to mourn the victims and then we're going to move on and wait for the next shooting to happen, which is likely going to happen today. It may not get publicized. But um, I think one of the things to kind of keep, I mean, I I take Chuck's point um, seriously. I went shooting uh, with my my cousin over the break. And one of the things that I found is that, you know, the allure of having the, 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 the assault rifle is I can aim better with it. Um, and I'm actually a pretty good aim sort of like as it is, but it's a lot easier to aim with a, with a long gun than it is with a handgun. And so that's part of the reason why I think people are using it, especially if they're relatively inexperienced with the gun. So um, I think we need to think about that. I think we need to think about the fact that AR-15s can decapitate children if you aim in the right place. All of those things should make us ask, is this really the type of society that we want? Uh, Andre, I want you to clarify before we move on. Uh, you talk about a long gun. Not all long guns are assault weapons. Um, you know, I, like I'm not 100 percent sure of what the weapon is that that I was using. So I don't want to say I was using this when I was using that. It was a semi-assault rifle. Um, so, yes, no, it wasn't a, a, like a rifle like one I would use, like, you know, like a 12 gauge shotgun. Um, right. Like my experience sort of with that in terms of like what buckshot is, is totally different. But when you're using sort of an assault weapon, like you, you can, the, the laser actually helps you aim a lot better from my experience. That's I, I just want to make sure we don't leave the impression <laughs> that a long gun is necessarily a semi-automatic or automatic weapon. Right. Alan? Well, I would just say that I think what we're seeing in this un- very sad uh, cases is that uh, uh, the way in which we're going to see the, the divisions in, in, within American society over this issue are deeper than ever. Uh, and part of this this uh, uh, cult surrounding the assault weapons involves this belief that's been spread on the far right that these weapons are necessary for people to defend themselves against the government. That is a big part of the appeal uh, of this and uh, of the support or opposition to any any sort of efforts to restrict these weapons. Uh, And meanwhile, finally tomorrow, we should point out that, of course, Georgia has some of the most uh, liberal uh, carry laws in the country. And certainly there's no sense that there's anything going to change in in that respect here in our state. No, and the, the discussion in the legislature in recent years has been, how do we open uh kind of these laws how do we allow you know how do we end even more restrictions on that so we're definitely going in the other direction that's it we are completely out of time for today's show i'm really grateful to the panel for taking on so many issues in our one hour tomorrow uh hallerman Andre gillespie charles bullock and alan abramowitz thank you for a really smart conversation we're back tomorrow on the final day of the legislative session 
with a lot more to talk about. I hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody. <laughs>